0: We're in the second-to-last book of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. This is a really powerful text about the abundant grace of God and how the Lord works to fulfill His purposes. And when I planned this series a couple months back, I knew I was going to do this text, um, but I kind of put it on this weekend And then, as we talked as leaders and planned and actually bumped up the meeting um, later a week, uh, and we saw that this day was going to be the congregational meeting and the Zechariah 4 text, we knew that was of the Lord because it lined up absolutely perfectly together. There are two themes that are in this particular passage that connect to our meeting after the service. The first theme is the concept of rebuilding the temple rebuilding the temple and I'll explain that in a minute, but I believe that really relates to the new ministry initiatives that that are going to expand our ministry and are going to renovate our building. So the first theme of rebuilding the temple, the second theme is the call to move forward only, and I use that word very specifically, only in the power of the Holy Spirit. not by our wisdom, not by our efforts, Uh, which has always been our goal as a church in the eight years that we've existed, but we're really seeking that in a renewed way right now. Now, the setting for Zechariah 4 is that um, Judah has been in captivity in Babylon, but they have started to return home. It's about 538 B.C., and Zechariah, who's a prophet, had been born in Babylon. He was among those that were the first kind of group coming back to Judah to, to kind of rebuild the nation. And that started in about, again, 538. Zechariah was a Levite. He was part of the priestly tribe, and as he gets older, he starts to take greater responsibility and eventually becomes the head of the family of priests. So he's right in the center of the action as the temple's being rebuilt, as the priesthood's being restored, he's right there. And as they start this temple rebuilding project, about two years after they get back, Um, Because it had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and Jerusalem had been basically flat and the temple was gone that Solomon had built. They come back and they start to rebuild and they rebuild for about six years and then there's a ten year pause. And then in 520 BC when this book was written, the temple starts to be rebuilt again. And it took about four years. So now this is right in the heart of, of a renewal, of a restoration, a renovation that's taking place in the nation of Judah. Now you would think that the people would be thrilled that, that they've come out of captivity after years and years, that, that, that they're coming back, they're starting to renovate and restore and rebuild and, and everything would be wonderful. You would think that, that they would be positive, but they're not. In fact, they see their situation as so dire and their future as so hopeless that as they start to rebuild, there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of fear. They, they, they kind of say, well, we don't think this will ever really be done. So the message of Zechariah is kind of mixed. On one hand, the Lord is kind of rebuking the people saying, you've been unfaithful. It's, this is historical. I mean, it goes way, way back. You, you, you as a people have been unfaithful, and, and I want to show you that there's a cause and effect between sin and discipline and difficulty. But I also want that to be a call to renewal, not just in terms of building buildings, but spiritually, I want you to be renewed. Now, that call to repentance is, is one that is always relevant. That's always important and one that we need to consistently respond to in our daily lives to make sure our hearts are humble, to make sure our hearts are broken, to make sure that we're pure and we're surrendered to the Lord. If we want to be in the center of his will, because he says the will of God is your sanctification. So if we want to be in the center of the will of God, we need to be holy and set apart and sanctified. So on one hand, he's saying you need to get right spiritually. Now, on the other hand, he's encouraging them, I did bring you back. I've taken you out of captivity. I took you through discipline because you deserved it. But now I'm showing mercy to you. Now I'm bringing you back. Now, Now I'm helping you out even though you've been unfaithful. And this is the extent of God's love. This is the extent of God's mercy that he had already planned how to show them favor. He had already planned what he was going to do. And that if they would just return to him, if they would just come back spiritually, that he would help them. How many know the Lord is gracious? That he's so ready to forgive. He's so ready to restore people. And if he's willing to do that when we're rebellious, how much more is he willing to do it when we love him, when we're faithful to him? I mean, if God will show Judah mercy... And and he will put up with them and their sin and their rebellion. And and then he'll restore them and bring them back captivity and bring them back and and send a message and say, I'll help you. If he'll do that when we're rebellious, how much more will he do it when we're full of faith? And that's the really exciting message of this text. Look at it. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 4. The angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who's awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps were are on top of it. Also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, another on the left. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was speaking with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, Or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and forth throughout the earth. Now, Between chapters 1 and 6, Zechariah has eight different visions about what the Lord was planning to do. And the one in verse, uh, chapter 4 is, is the most clear about their actual success in rebuilding the temple. Because remember, they're kind of discouraged and feeling defeated. And interestingly, the angel you see in verse 1 kind of physically shakes Zachariah to wake him up and explain this vision to him, which kind of puts extra emphasis on the importance of the message. And I think the fact that, that he had to kind of rouse him from his sleep reminds us that there are going to be times when the Spirit of God specifically stirs us. Maybe we've become complacent to the point of kind of missing out on what he's doing. Or maybe we're, we're feeling discouraged or weary or anxious. I, I even felt that to show you how the Lord works and, and teaches us. I even felt that this morning driving to church with, with Annie and kind of feeling a little discouraged and, and nervous about today and whatever. I just, I've been kind of just weird this week, and, and I don't know, this spiritual opposition or whatever, but just just kind of feeling, feeling kind of down. And she's like, I'm excited about what the Lord's doing, and then she started playing total praise, and I'm like, okay, okay. All right, Lord, I get it. I get it. We need a fresh understanding. We need a fresh uh, call to action, to be woken up, right? To, to be stirred a little bit. And even as somebody that's been, been praying over this and dealing with this for months and months and months, it's interesting how the devil tries to discourage us, right? To try to drag us down to try to make us feel nervous and anxious. And well, it's not going to work. Yeah, it is going to work because the Lord's moving. And when the Lord's moving, that's when things really happen. So the angel asked Zachariah what he sees. Look at it. Zachariah says, and you can see it on the screen, there's a, there's a golden candlestick, and it's got a bowl on top, and there are seven oil spouts leading to seven more candles. The Hebrew word in the text is actually the word menorah, right? So you've seen a menorah before. That's at the bottom uh, there of what we see. It's from the Jewish culture, and this is where the concept came from. The candlestick with the other seven candles that are constantly burning, and they never run out of oil because there are olive trees on each side. And the olive trees are so full of, of olive oil that they're pouring down into the lamb. Now, why do we care about that? Well, it teaches us a spiritual principle. And Zechariah, doesn't really understand it at first, but we need to see it this morning because the Spirit explains it. Here's the principle, that the Lord can accomplish his plan and purposes and give full provision without any help from us. The Lord can accomplish his plans and purposes and provide full provision without any help from us. Now, why is that important for us this morning? Because when we hand out these little booklets later on and we go through them, I want you to understand at the outset, this isn't some clever, new, groundbreaking strategy that we have come up with after many meetings in all our wisdom and cleverness. All we are going to present this morning is a response to the Lord's leading and faith in his plan and his provision for his purpose. But here's the thing, our faith and our obedience can be a catalyst for him to work. Imagine how different the message would have been from Zechariah if the people had been faithful. Imagine how different the message would have been if they hadn't rebelled and hadn't followed false gods and hadn't allowed wicked kings to come in and they hadn't just been constantly in opposition to the work of the Lord, imagine if the people after David died had stayed faithful. And imagine if Solomon, who had built the temple, had continued to worship the Lord instead of following a thousand foreign women and worshiping false gods. Imagine if people like Ahab had never been king of Israel, but, but godly, holy men had followed one after another after another. How different the message would have been from Zechariah to not have to say, you've rebelled against the Lord and you need to return. See, the narrative of our lives and our ministry is often dependent on how we respond to the Lord. And that doesn't diminish the sovereignty of God. It doesn't diminish His will any more than your role and your authority as a parent is diminished by how your kids respond to your leadership. If our kid, if my my children rebel against me, I'm still the dad. It doesn't change the fact that I'm the father. But if they do the right thing, and they trust me, and they obey, I'm going to be way more inclined to help them and bless them, right? I'm going to want to do for them. Now, that's exponentially true when it comes to the Lord, Exponentially. There are numerous examples in the Bible of God working powerfully in the lives of those who are faithful to him, and just as many of him disciplining and withholding blessing from those who are unfaithful and rebellious. The cause and effect is very, very important. So if we live right in the center of God's will, he is going to do awesome works in our midst. If we do not, if we refuse, even subtly, if we remain indifferent or, or, or on the edge of what we're called to do as his children, we're going to miss out on so much. See, Israel and Judah's histories could have been very different. They could have been fulfilled and blessed constantly. So here's the thing. As believers and as a church, let's make very sure, let's make very sure that we are always living right in the middle of what God wants us to do. You know, we often take the verse out of context, but Jeremiah twenty-nine, eleven says that God has plans too wonderful for us to imagine. He says in Malachi 3, we studied it a while back, that he's ready to open up the storehouse of heaven and pour out blessing on us if we will give ourselves fully to him. So the message of that candlestick, the, the, the picture that Zechariah sees is that the Lord is going to work. And he's chosen Zerubbabel, you see it in the text, to rebuild the temple. He's brought them back from exile in Babylon. He's going to direct them, and he's going to make this happen. But there is a very clear condition that he establishes here, and it's in verse 6, that the Lord says, you need to understand this is the absolute condition of what's going to happen, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. So Zerubbabel and all the other wise people that are going to develop the plan and rebuild the temple, and over the four years, they're going to carry this out, and it's going to be restored, and the people are going to be part of it. I I want you to understand right at the outset, right from the front, this is not going to work unless it's by my spirit. If you try to do it yourself, control it yourself, come up with the plan yourself, and leave me out of it, it will not work. And that's a very important principle for us to hear today and every single time we meet. Let me give you a second thought here. It must be, it must be by His might and His power and His leading. Because that is the only way we will be successful and blessed. I don't care how clever we are, how smart we are, how much ministry we've studied, how many churches we visited, for this church if we do not operate in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, I don't care how successful or much of a failure we are, it's not good. We have to be living under the power of the Spirit. And that, and that truth is illustrated all throughout Scripture. Joseph going from betrayal by his family and false accusation and rotting in some foreign prison to being the one who became a leader and saved a whole nation from death and reunites his family. That was all by the hand of God. Israel being delivered out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea and having the manna and the water and going through Sinai and getting to Jericho and crossing the river on dry ground, that was all by God's hand. David running toward Goliath and defeating him, and then offsetting Saul and having a breakthrough victory at Balperazim. That was all by God's hand. Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Uh, Esther outwitting Haman. Jonah surviving three days in the belly of a fish so he could go preach to the Ninevites and see them repent. The disciples having boldness and courage to spread the gospel and stand up to people that said, do not preach the name of Jesus anymore. Peter walking out of a jail at night. Paul and Silas living through an earthquake so the Philippian jailer and his family could come to Christ. That was all by God's hand. It was not their effort, their courage, their wisdom. It was the hand of the Lord. And God is so good and so gracious. And here's the thing. When his hand is on us, and he's rewarding our faith, and he's anointing our obedience, And he's blessing our faithfulness. That's when powerful things happen. When God's hand is at work. And God is using our willingness and our faith and our obedience. Not that he needs our help. But then he steps it up and he says, I'm really going to work now. We should not want any part of what is our wisdom. And that phrase is an oxymoron, right? Our wisdom. We shouldn't want any part of that. We shouldn't want any part of in, what is in our strength. I don't know about you, but I'm physically and emotionally tired. So I don't have a, a strength. Oh, I'm going to come up with some strength. We don't have any strength right now. We need God's strength. I don't want any part of what is in my planning because you know what? I'm not very good at it. We want God's will, and God's strength, and God's wisdom, and God's planning. And over the last two or three years, our leadership team has really put an increased emphasis on this as a foundational principle for our church, and it's even more true today. So I want to give you something we've said many times in our meetings that is very, very important for you to hear from me. That is, we are not going to take one step if it's not the Spirit's leading power. We're not going to take one step. So we need to fervently call on him. We need to ask him for wisdom and discernment. We need to study his word. And then we need to follow what's pleasing to him, what's rational, what's good stewardship. And then we need to ask him again and again and again, is what we're discerning of you? Is what we're discerning of you? That's why we're calling this next step for our church, Breakthrough. Because it's an affirmation of our desire to do what David did in 2 Samuel chapter 5. When he said, I will not go forward into battle. I will not go forward unless, Lord, you affirm to me this is what you're leading. And then the second time he faces battle, he prays again. And he says, Lord, I want to make sure this is your leading. And when God does that, when God affirms that, he literally gives him a, a breakthrough victory. In fact, David renames the place Breakthrough, Baal Perizim, the place where God broke through. Now we know the concept, right? We know that this is true. But look back at verse 7 for a minute and let's be reminded of how this plays out in our lives. Because the difficulty and the opposition and the fear that comes with it and the anxiety that comes with it, it's represented in verse 7 as a mountain. How many times have you and I Looked at a situation and seen a mountain standing in the way. Significant health problems. Financial difficulty. Lack of direction. A broken marriage. A a family relationship that is fractured. Even spiritual warfare that discourages us. And we get to the place where like, I just, I don't know if I can get through this. I don't know if I can overcome that. Many times those issues that stand before us loom like a a giant mountain in the middle of the road. And we don't see a road through it. We don't see a road over it. We don't see a road around it. Right? Have you ever, have you ever felt that? You ever seen that where there's just like, Lord, there's this mountain and I don't know what to do about it. So it's interesting that Jesus in Matthew chapter 17 says, if you will have faith like a mustard seed, right? That fits right into our series on small things having great impact. He says, if you'll have faith like a mustard seed, you'll be able to say to that mountain, move out of the way. Get out of the way. And it will move. Now let's be very, very clear. It's not... The power of our word of faith that moves that. It's not me saying, well, I'm just going to declare. I'm just going to say, mountain, move out of the way. What is it? It's the Spirit of God. It's His power. Not by, tell me, might. Not by power. But by what? His Spirit we get so worked up as, well, I'm just going to declare a word of faith and that that disease is going to be gone. Did it actually disappear? Are you saying that because you have the power to declare that, that it's just going to be gone? Or are you saying, Spirit of God, are you going to do that? Let's be very cautious not to say, well, it's because I said it. When the Lord has work to do, our earthly problems don't impede Him. He is the Lord of all, and He tells us and commands us, trust me. And when we do, look back at the text, He is able to flatten that mountain into a plain. Because when God is working, no obstacle is too much for Him. And I love the way the Lord reminds us of that. Look back at verse 7. He says, where are you, O great mountain? You have become a plain. You know, Isaiah 40 has the same theme. Look at it on the screen. It says, a voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let every rough ground, there's the word again, become a plain plain then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. You see, we know that the Lord can do the work of moving mountains because that's what Jesus did for us. You and I had mountains of sin. I estimated to the middle schoolers one night, I think I've said this to you before, that I've probably committed no less in my life, no less than 700,000 sins. And that's probably a really small number. Like that's probably five times too small. So let's just, for the sake of grins, call it a million. All right? A million sins, what does that look like? Is that a little, you know, speed bump in the road? Well, Rhodes, look at him. He committed a million sins. Well, we'll just hop over that. Now that's a mountain. A million sins that I've committed in my life or probably more. And you know what Jesus did? He flattened them. That, that mountain stood like Mount Everest. All my offenses, all my shame, all my guilt. And God said, not only am I going to flatten those, I'm going to erase them from memory by my grace. That's why, I look at it. Oh, this is so beautiful. At the end of verse 7, the Lord says, there will be a topstone that's brought forth with shouts of grace. And that represents Jesus, the rock of our salvation, the foundation of our faith. The Bible calls him our chief cornerstone. He's the one who poured out grace. He's the one who won victory forever. And now he stands as the author and finisher of our faith on top of that mountain that's been made a plain. And he says, I'm the one who did it. I'm the one who did it. And even here, 530 years before Jesus ever shows up, the Lord tells us, I will offer you grace and mercy. And it's powerful and it's sufficient enough to remove the mountains of sin from your life and to erase them. And I will minister to you when you face mountains of opposition and difficulty and trial and hardship. Guess what? I can flatten those out for you. But if you try to do it yourself... If you try to look at that mountain of your sin or that mountain of your obstacles and you take a shovel and you start digging away, guess what? You're never going to get there. I can do it like that. So why are you trusting yourself? None of this will be accomplished through your power and your might. It will only be accomplished by my spirit. So look at verse 8. He says, The hands of Zerubbabel... They've laid the foundation for the new temple. And he's going to finish it, and you're going to know that's because of me. You're going to know I'm the one who did it. Now, that leads us to our last verse. And I want to take a couple minutes with this because it's very important. Look at verse 10 because there's a very interesting statement here that I believe has tremendous application for our church this morning. He says in verse 10, Who has despised... The day of small things. Now, on one hand, that refers to the external opposition that God's people always face whenever He's working through them and for them. And we need to know, and many of you have been in church long enough to know, that there will always be critics. There will always be people that stir up fear. There will always be people who who don't want to see the Lord's work done in any church. And they're going to try to have a significant impact to, to hinder us from submitting to the Lord's leading. We see it in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, where many of the Jews were critical of what's happening here, the building of the second temple. Many people were were doubters, and they said, well, it can't be like the first temple, and this is going to be inferior, and this is stupid, we don't want to do this. this, this is the wrong move. Nehemiah faced opposition when he came back and wanted to rebuild the wall of drowned Jerusalem. And you remember Sanballat and Tobias and they stir up the people and it gets so bad that the workers are having to hold their tool in one hand and and a piece of weaponry in another. They're they're having to divide their work because they're so nervous that at any point they're gonna get attacked. You know, we've seen Through churches we've been in, we've seen it in this church, that that even small actions can have a big impact, but we need to know that whatever we're doing, the enemy's going to oppose it. That's just the reality. And that shouldn't discourage us, because the Lord's already defeated him. And the Lord diminishes the devil's opposition, but we need to be aware and on guard of external opposition. Then there's a second factor. There's sometimes internal opposition, and this can take the form of faithlessness and hesitation and even dismissal of what the Lord's trying to do. And we've seen some of that in the last eight years, too. And I pray it doesn't exist today, but I'm, I'm smart enough to know that there may be people that look at what we're going to say today, and I don't know about that, and it doesn't seem like a good plan. Listen, that's not to say there shouldn't be questions. It's not to say there shouldn't be healthy discussion. But let's be very careful, church, not to have small faith at this point. Let's also be careful not to say, well, what's the big deal? This isn't, man, you present this like this is some kind of huge step. This isn't a big deal. We should have done this years ago. I want to tell you, though, that to a man on our leadership team, every single one of us is convinced that the scope and the timing of what we're going to do is exactly right. So I want to really please hear me this morning as your pastor. I want to encourage us this morning that while these next steps we're going to take may seem small compared to what some bigger churches are doing, and even in the grand scheme of what the Lord's doing around the world, we're like, well, this is not that big a deal. It doesn't mean it's not important. Let's be very much on guard not to look down at this because I am convinced that this is his leading for our church and it's the beginning of a greater work. You know, it's interesting. Over the last year, I have heard the same sentence from members of our congregation across all ages and gender and level of involvement. Time and again, I have heard people say, the Lord is doing something here. I had two people say it to me just last Sunday. One who's been here since we started at the Marriott. One who's been here all of two months. And I didn't think that was any kind of a coincidence. As leaders, we have deeply sensed that it is a fresh time of God's leading. It is a fresh time of God's expansion of our ministry. And our prayer has been that we will discern what that means and follow it faithfully. So as we sat in our meeting Monday night, I asked Adam and Jamie Canulti and Tony and Jamie Toonstra. I said, all right, we keep hearing this phrase, the Lord's doing something here. The, Lord, the Lord's doing something here. I said, all right, stop for a minute. What does that look like? If the Lord's really doing something here and the Lord's really stirring us, how does that manifest itself in our congregation? In other words, what does it look like when the Spirit of God leads us? And I want to tell you, our, our leaders are so humble and so submitted to the Lord, and I was so thrilled by their answers. And I wrote down what we, what we said at the time, and I want you to hear what we believe the Lord's work at Harbor Rock Tabernacle will look like. If, if God's really leading us, the Lord's really doing something here, we believe this is what it'll look like. It's on the screen. First of all, there will be a call to holiness. There will be a call to holiness because, as we've seen in our study this morning, we're not in the center of God's will if we're not holy. Second thing is we believe that anybody will be ministering to anybody at any given time. We will be leading each other in progression spiritually. We'll be encouraging and building each other up and strengthening each other at any time anybody can do that to anybody. Third, there will be a freedom. We will be walking in the power of God, and our church will look like Acts. We've said that since day one, that we asked the Lord to make us like an Acts 2 church. And we believe that's if the Lord's moving and doing something here, that's what he'll do. We'll keep these on the screen. You don't have to worry about scribbling them all down. Number four, the body will be engulfed in God. This is verbatim words. The Lord's presence will be so overwhelming that people will come just because of that. And there will be engagement for all people. won't matter your race, your nationality, where you grew up, your economic standpoint. doesn't matter to us. We want everybody. Engagement for all people because the presence of the Lord is here. And this is the fifth thing. The presence of the Lord will be so obvious that you know it when you walk in. And this will be a place where we see visceral life change. And all five of those things will be led and directed and empowered by the Spirit of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that church. That's the kind of church I want to be in. So we need to pray for it, and we need to live it out, and then we need to expect the Lord to do it in our mix. Because if you look back one more time at the text in verse 10, Using the example in that verse, I believe this is our plumb line. In construction, the plumb line is the line of demarcation. It it delineates what is straight and right, and the plumb line serves as a visual point of reference for the work. So when you look at those things on the screen, I believe those are the five statements. Those are the new plumb line for our church. And as next week we enter into year nine, hard to believe, and we go beyond, I pray that we will see these traits being true in our ministry and throughout our congregation, and that we will know that following the line of demarcation that the Lord has set before us will only bring us joy, and it will only see the hand of God moving in a great way. And as we do that, you know what we're going to do? We're going to praise the Lord. We're going to honor the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. And we're going to ask him, Lord, continue to show us what you want to do. Because we are not going to despise the day of small things. We're going to love the day of small things. We're going to love to see what you're doing. And we're going to trust you. How many are ready to do that? Aren't you ready to see the Lord move that way and to lead us and bless us like that? Let's thank him.